Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts of the Spirit, for how you've enabled us to serve you, Father, in better ways, ways that reflect glory upon you, ways that build up this body of people in a helpful and important way, in, in giving us encouragement and love and direction and guidance and exhortation and giving us a word from you, giving us added understanding of who you are, these gifts you've laid at our feet through the work of the body of Christ. We thank you, Father, for the, the opportunity we have to serve in our gifts. And we thank you for the blessing that it is to partner with you in any way, in all that you are intending to do. We're never the key, Father. We know that in our hearts that we do so little of any merit. We often get in the way. But we are so thankful, Father, that you look past those limitations and you work to include us so that we can be an audience to your greatness and to your power so that we can marvel at the work of your hands working through us. We look forward, Father, to the opportunity to travel if that's your will for us at times to go to other places. But even around those moments, Father, true ministry is what we do in between the mission trips. It's the things that, that dominate our daily life. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to serve here and elsewhere. But we also know, Father, that we serve only in the richness of what you put inside us, that it's the overflowing of what you've given us that lets us be useful to you. So I ask, Father, that the word that we learned this morning as we've continued through our study of 1 Corinthians would prepare us in a sincere and meaningful way to be a better servant, to consider our actions, to consider others' needs, to look for ways to show love, to be concerned with how we please you in all that we do. Let that instruction, Father, go and into our hearts this morning and do the work you have intended by it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are making progress through this wonderful book, this wonderful letter. Last week we concluded our study on Paul's explanation of Christian liberty. Not that there isn't more we could say, but at least for now in the course of this letter, Paul has put us in a position to understand that our rights to do certain things are contingent on how they affect others. In the case of the three chapters we just studied, it was Paul addressing the Corinthians' right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he addressed that topic, you remember, because they had written a question to him in a letter delivered by Chloe. And in that letter, they had asked him specifically about this practice. And we saw him launch into that conversation in chapter 8 with that introduction, now concerning. And those are the words we know that tell us Paul has moved to a new topic, to one of their questions. And then from the three chapters after that, from chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul has worked his way through a series of points on this matter of eating meat. We know Paul has received other questions. The letter that Chloe delivered had a series of things that he's going to address. And so he's going to get to each of those in turn, and we have more yet to come in this letter. But we also notice that as Paul addresses each of these topics, he will also insert some of his own topics along the way. For, for example, when he was answering the question on meat, we notice Paul introduced the topic of Christian liberty, which was not what he was asked, but it was central to the point he had to make. So Paul wants to make sure the church understands larger contexts, even as he goes to addressing a particular concern that they raise. Well, as we enter chapter 11 today, we're going to find Paul moving even further away from the question that he was asked about meat. And yet he has not started the next topic yet. He is still looking generally at this issue of liberty. But now comes a chapter in which Paul is going to raise two concerns of his own for the needs of this church 
that are related to the question they asked him. Let's begin in chapter 11 and you'll see what I mean as we move through it. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Let's just set up where Paul is going next. He writes in verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, notice Paul doesn't begin this chapter or this part of the letter with that phrase, now concerning. That's our clue to understand we haven't moved entirely into something new as yet. But nevertheless, he is talking about new subject matter here. It's not the same topic we've just been addressing in the last three chapters. He's not talking about meat anymore. And in reality, he's not even really addressing Christian liberty per se. Rather, he's about to address two specific topics Things that he's heard are happening in the church which are abuses of Christian liberty. And he introduces his concern with these two statements. He says, first, that the church should follow his lead. Now, this is a follow-on or a, a transition out of what he ended in chapter 10 doing. Remember, at the end of 10, Paul was saying he becomes all things to all men, seeking to win them for Christ. And Paul's saying, I set aside my personal liberties any time I had to, if it was necessary to be more effective in ministry. And in that regard, he says, I did those things gladly. You should do the same. Imitate that pattern in my life, and you would do well to do so. And then secondly, in verse 2, Paul offers the church a praise. And these are precious moments in this letter, by the way. There aren't a whole lot of places you can go in 1 Corinthians in which Paul is praising this church. And he praises them concerning one thing in particular, their willingness to hold firmly to traditions that Paul himself had delivered during his visit. Now, for us, for Christians, for Bible church Christians particularly, the word tradition often carries a negative sense or can carry a negative sense. Because there are religions, and we know of those, many of us have probably walked out of certain religious patterns, in which tradition has a very unhealthy influence. In other words, there are churches and traditions of one kind or another that rely on traditional ritualistic behavior rather than relying on the Word of God. And in so doing, they've departed from the Word of God. So we sometimes have a negative feeling when somebody starts talking about tradition in the context of church. But there are times in which traditions are good and they can be useful so long as they are consistent with the word of God. And in so being and in repeating certain rituals or practicing certain traditions, we can be effective at teaching principles of scripture, certain principles of godliness, things that guide our conduct. Now, in this case, when Paul says, you did well to hold firmly to the traditions that I delivered to you, he uses a word in Greek for tradition, which refers to something that is handed down and is honored. These are things worthy of respect, worthy of our attention. Paul says the Corinthian church showed that appropriate respect for traditions Paul gave them. They observed them as they were taught, and they stuck with them even after Paul left. Now, what kind of traditions do you think Paul is referring to? Well, Christians have traditions, traditions that find their root in the word of God, things we've been called to observe and to hand down. For example, we have a practice of baptism, water baptism. We have the practice of the Lord's Supper, of the communion meal. We have even just the simple practice of gathering together regularly for worship, corporate worship. These things are called traditions because... They are cherished rituals. They are handed down from generation to generation, and they serve good and useful purposes. 
But they are not man-made traditions. Let's be clear on what we mean when we use this word. Just because something's a tradition doesn't mean it came from men. They are not optional in the case of the things I just mentioned. They're not unimportant. They are given to us by Christ. And yet we use the word tradition in describing them because they have some flexibility. They teach important spiritual truths. They teach important principles, but they have some degree of flexibility in the way we practice them. For example, baptism requires immersion in water if we were to communicate the message that it is intended to convey. However, it doesn't really matter what kind of dunking you do. You could be in a bathtub, you could be in a river, you could be in a swimming pool, you could be wherever. The ocean, a puddle of water on the side of the road, as you see in Acts chapter 8. The point is, there's some flexibility there. And so it's got a traditional uh, side to it, and yet it has a, a certain essence, a certain element to it that can't be ignored or overlooked. Similarly, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper requires the elements of bread and the pressing of grapes, but the exact form those two objects take is not really that important, or the exact way we hand them out or consume them is not the point. There are some things that are prescribed that we want to pay attention to, but not every aspect of it is prescribed. And not even how often you do it. Paul says, as often as you come together, which is to say, frequently. And in all cases, our priority should be on whether the proper message is being delivered through the observance of the tradition. If the form of our observance, whatever that tradition is, if it's distorted or if it changes the message that's implied by the tradition, then we have ventured too far away from where the tradition began. So back to what we said in chapters 8 through 10. Remember, it wasn't the meat. It was the message. Well, in that sense, Paul is in a similar vein of thought now, though in a new area. He's saying there are traditions I handed you and I commend you for keeping to them. But there are going to be two cases in this chapter in which they have ventured so far from the tradition that they're doing damage to the message. They're letting liberty compromise the meaning and the value of the tradition. Paul addresses those two examples in this chapter. We're going to study one today and the other next week. In verse 3, Paul moves directly, though, into his concern about the first of these traditions. Look in verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Paul says God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. Now, he's speaking here concerning the administration of authority in the family. And I'm going to look at each item on the list here. In fact, I'm going to reorder them a little bit for our purposes so that they move from top to bottom. So we'll begin with first the father, he says, is the head of the son. That is Christ. Now, this is a very important principle of the Trinity. We know God to be three persons in Scripture and yet one God which is a mystery to our limited understanding of it. We know that no one of the Godhead, no one person in the Godhead created any other member of the Godhead. All three coexisted from the beginning, we're told, in Scripture. In fact, we can see all three present even in the first two verses of the Bible as the creation gets started. Nevertheless, as you look across the entirety of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, you find distinct roles emerging within the Godhead. For example, we know that the son obeys the father. You never see the father obeying the son. While the father instructs the son. The father gives a bride to the son. The son then in turn presents that bride to the father spotless. 
The son gives his spirit to us, yet the spirit is the one who draws us to the son. The son prays to the father, not the other way around. And yet the father glorifies his son and so on and so on. All of these role distinctions that we see coming out in the scriptures begin to imply a certain hierarchy. Now, that fact of hierarchy does not diminish the fact that they are all three persons of the Godhead and they are all equally God. This is where the mystery comes back in. But yet we see the hierarchy. We see the distinctions. We can't deny that they exist. So Paul reminds the church that even Christ himself, even a member of the Godhead, respects and honors the authority of the Father within the Godhead. So if Christ himself can respectfully acknowledge an authority in the Godhead, then certainly it's not wrong if we're expected to do the same within our spheres, within our relationships. And so Paul moves down the chain of authority accordingly. And he says, just as Christ looks to the Father in a hierarchical fashion, in some way we don't fully understand. Likewise, he says, Christ is to be understood as the head of every man. The word for man here is aner in Greek, and that's very important because it should be translated more accurately, husband. It's the word husband in Greek. There's a different word in Greek for just generically man or a male person. This is specifically talking about a husband, and that's how we know Paul is talking here about a family unit. The leadership roles within a family. He is not talking about society in general, and this is a very important principle that gets us out of trouble sometimes when Christian understanding of authority goes too far. This is a discussion about leadership in a single household. So a husband in a household answers to Christ for what decisions he makes in his family, for what kind of leader he is in his family, for how he instructs and guides that family. Christ's headship will be most clearly evident to that man, to that husband, when he stands before Christ on his judgment day and he answers for how he worked spiritually in his own family. There'll certainly be no doubt in that moment that the man, the husband, was under the headship of Christ. But Christ's authority over husband doesn't wait for that moment. Even now, every day, the Lord is working by his spirit in the husband to guide Christian husbands to love and lead their wives and their children. They are to be the teacher in the home, spiritually speaking. They are to be the model of obedience to Christ and to his word for the sake of his family. And they are to patiently guide and even discipline as necessary his family so that they would have reason to ensure godliness in that home. That is the call for a Christian husband, whether the Christian husband understands it or not, whether they live up to it or not. That is the standard they'll be guided by. Now, of course, if we are a Christian husband in a family in which our spouse is not believing or some of our children are not believing, then there is a limit to how far we can go in extending them to godliness. We understand that. We can't overcome those things in our flesh. But it doesn't stop us from wanting to or trying, and that's all that we are asked to do. Husbands bear this responsibility. We cannot avoid it. We cannot delegate it. Then, Paul says, lastly, the man is the head of a woman. So we've gone from the father heading Christ, Christ heading over the man, and he's speaking within the line of authority of a single family, to the husband, that is. And then he says, a man is the head of a woman. And once again, the word in Greek here for man is husband. So he's saying a husband is the head of his wife. Paul does not say the husband is the head of every woman. 
And that's an important distinction. A husband has leadership authority over his wife and his children, obviously. But men, in general, do not automatically have authority over women in society. Outside of the family, men and women operate on equal terms spiritually. Except as roles have been designated for certain things like teaching or pastoring, apart from those specific roles in which we have additional teaching to give us the details on, if we just talk in general terms about society, there is no spiritual basis for me to think I have some authority over her. For her husband is her spiritual authority. And we can't, as men, take this principle of headship in the family and walk outside these buildings in a misogynistic mindset and look down on a woman and say, I'm a man, you're a woman, God says I'm in control. That's nonsense. That's sin. That's not love. And it's not informed in Scripture. This is where I think Christians sometimes get a bad reputation, where we take what's been given and we extend it into context where it's not been given. So being clear on what Paul's saying, in the line of authority of a family, it is Christ to the husband to the wife. And there's no one else in that arrangement. There's no one else inserting themselves in that arrangement. So within a single family, God has established a hierarchy of authority. And he's done so for good purposes. A husband has the responsibility and the privilege and the burden for the spiritual welfare of that family. And the family, that includes both the wife and the children, are commanded by Scripture to honor and to respect the man's role as leader. And we find plenty of other places where this truth is echoed. For example, in Colossians 3.18, Paul says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then in Ephesians, the two classic chapters, by the way, you would go for this are Ephesians 5 and and First uh, Peter 3, but here's Ephesians 5. He says, verses 22 through 24, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And by the way, the command for a wife to respect her husband's leadership role is not contingent upon her husband's good performance in that role. Regardless of how well a husband leads, a wife is commanded to do her best to respect his authority in the home. In fact, Peter teaches in 1 Peter 3 that if a husband is not doing the right thing, the best way for a wife to win him over to godly living is for her to submit to his authority despite his failings. 1 Peter 3, 1, Paul says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The principle is simple. We do each what we are called to do, and by being good at what we're called to do, we may inspire or influence others to be good at what they're supposed to do. I know this raises in our modern and, and very liberal culture, it raises concerns about how far this should go and under what extent it should apply and so on. I think the rules can be best understood if you compare them to the context of how we expect parents and children to interact. No matter how fallible parents are, a child is nevertheless expected to honor their parents and submit to their parents' authority. There's no point in the normal give and take in a family life in which parents find their children saying, you know what, mom, or you know what, dad, since you're not perfect, I've decided today that until you're perfect, I'm not going to obey what you tell me to do. I mean, no one accepts that logic, right? Only in circumstances in which the parent is abusive, dangerously neglectful, well outside the bounds of normal parenting behavior, only in those circumstances would we expect them to forfeit their authority over those children and for the children's welfare to be accounted for in some other way. 
Likewise, only in extreme examples where a husband crosses the line to become abusive or reckless in some way, only then would the wife, I believe, have the reason scripturally to challenge his authority or to seek cover elsewhere, to escape his influence in those circumstances. But barring that, just because he's a jerk, just because he's bad with money, just because he doesn't treat you nice, all of those things don't rise, I think, to the level that Scripture would expect before I can challenge his authority if I'm a wife submitted to him. And if you want the best example I can give you of that, it's the one that Peter himself uses in 1 Peter 3, which is Sarah and Abraham. Abraham asked his wife to lie so that she would be taken and made a member of the Pharaoh's harem. If you think you have good reason to object to your husband's leadership, you might think that would be an example where objection would be reasonable. She didn't object. She did it. And Peter actually commends her for it and says, she's your example, wife, of how far we might be needing to go in order to demonstrate faithfulness to a disobedient husband. And again, we all make that decision individually, and I don't pretend to have an answer for every situation. I'm trying to lay out the principles as best as I can understand them. Now, I've taken a lot of time on this point, as you can tell. But it's interesting to me that Paul himself does not take a lot of time to explain this principle, does he? He just blows right past it in one verse, I think because it's presumed by him to be an accepted truth in the church. He's just laying it down as a reminder. Instead, he moves forward and he connects this truth, this basic principle I just described, to a tradition that he wants the church to reinforce. Look at verses four and five. He says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. All right, well, now we've got to try to understand what is going on here, right? Verses 4 and 5, Paul reminds the church of a tradition. This is a tradition of his day, a tradition in which men and women would wear or not wear head coverings in the form or in the course of worship. In Paul's day, the Jewish and the early Christian tradition, the cultural tradition, was that men would never wear a head covering while they were engaged in a worship activity. On the other hand, women always did. So it was a general rule. Men didn't, women did. Paul says that given that tradition, if a man were to consciously and purposely walk into a house of worship with something on his head, knowing that everyone in the room expects him to do otherwise, he disgraces his head. And the Greek word for head here, in all cases, everywhere you see it appear in the text I'm reading, it's always the same Greek word that Paul uses. It's the word for head, but in Greek it has dual meaning. It can mean the noggin that sits on top of your shoulders, that head, or it can mean the authority figure over you. It's a synonym for both. In verse 4, Paul uses that word in both its senses. So Paul says that anytime a man wears a covering on his physical head, he is disgracing his authority head, that is Christ. So he's not disgracing his own noggin, he's disgracing Christ. So if a man wore a hat into the church service in Paul's day, he was disgracing Christ. And likewise, a wife who would arrive in church on that day, not wearing the head covering that she's expected to wear, she disgraces her husband. In fact, Paul says that if there was a wife who would dare to show up in the church service defying this tradition, then she is just as disgraceful to her husband as she would be if she consciously shaved her head bald that day and walked into church with no hair whatsoever. Well, in that case, of course, he's applying a second tradition of the day and comparing the two. So why are these behaviors so problematic? And maybe more to the question you're having right now is, is Paul expecting all Christians everywhere to apply these truths? 
Before we can answer those questions, we have to recognize the relationship here between the tradition and the message. Remember, I said already that traditions, even those that are mandated by Scripture, exist to edify us, to educate us, and to witness concerning truths of Scripture. That's the purpose in a tradition. These things are not magic. They're not hocus-pocus. They're not just something we do ritualistically for their own sake. They have a purpose in the message they convey. So in some cases, we're going to follow a tradition as it was handed down for an appreciation of the underlying message because it's still consistent with that message today as it was then. A good example of that would be the Lord's Supper or baptism. But there are going to be other cases in which we may need to modify or even set aside some traditions or rituals because they no longer communicate the message. There is no communication taking place. They have been reduced to nothing but ritual. In short, the message always takes precedence over the form in any tradition. So before we can determine whether some or any of these aspects of the tradition still apply to us today, we have to ask the more basic question. What was the message? And is that message still relevant today? Or does the message still come through if we follow that tradition today? Well, in the next passage, that's what Paul explains. He explains the importance of these things. In other words, he explains the message they communicate in his day. Look in verses 6 through 10. He says, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, well, then let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In Paul's day, a woman's choice for what she wore on her head or how she carried her hair, those choices carried a message with them, a message that was unavoidable. The head covering was a symbol that declared, I am submitted to someone else. That's its meaning. Now, if you're going to sit here and try to rationalize, well, how does putting something on your head communicate that? Well, that's sort of missing the point. Traditions emerge all over the place with, with symbols that don't necessarily make sense to us. We just learn what they mean and we work with it. In this case, it's about the word being a synonym, head and head, covering and covering. It's a symbol. Once you understand its meaning, you work with it. Specifically, failing to wear a head covering in worship was a way of communicating that the woman felt equal in authority with a man, and specifically with her husband. So Paul says, if a married woman is willing to walk into the church without her head covering, then she knows and the world knows with her that she's declaring loud and clear, I'm no longer submitted to my husband. That's what she's saying. But she's choosing to do it in this particularly sublime way, in this particular fashion. She's saying she doesn't have respect for her husband's authority. She's saying that she doesn't look to him for leadership. And Paul says, when you do that, you're disgracing your husband in public. Paul's saying that that's essentially what this woman's doing when she chooses not to wear a head covering. Because she knows what it means and she's consciously choosing to make that message known. Any woman who would do such a thing, Paul says, you might as well just shave your head which is an even more dramatic way of saying exactly the same thing. And if you want a comparison to real life today, what if you were on trial, had to go to a judge for some reason in a courtroom, and it's a serious offense, and you're on trial for your life or for your freedom, and you choose to show up at court wearing dirty cutoffs, flip-flops, and chewing gum loudly throughout the whole 
of the proceedings. Do you think the judge would understand you were trying to show contempt? Do you think he'd get the message? Do you think that would happen by accident? No, the point is it's intentional and everyone knows it. So Paul says, why don't you just go whole hog? Why do you play around? If you really believe that, then make it a big point. Shave your head and just act like a man and see how far that gets you. By the way, in Paul's day, if a woman was caught in adultery, the law required in Deuteronomy that she have her hair shaved off as a penalty. And in fact, in Paul's day, if you were a working prostitute, you wore your hair very short because that's how you advertised who you were and what you did. So if you say you want to have the statement you don't respect your husband's authority, then you should just go the whole distance, Paul says. But of course, no one's willing to actually do that. We understand what's behind this, right? Most people want to have a little moment of protest. They just don't want to protest so much they get in trouble. Your kids do this so well, right? All our kids do this. Get in the car so they walk slowly. Right? It's, I'm doing it. I'm not disobeying, but... Clean up your room. Okay, I'll clean it very slowly. Right? It's a form of protest. And my mind is, if you're going to protest, stand up and do it like someone who's got the guts to protest. Tell me to my face. Deny that you want to do it. Challenge my authority, and then let's see what follows next. So then Paul moves to explaining the full message behind the tradition. He says the tradition of wearing head coverings in Paul's day was a testimony to the order of creation. In verse seven, Paul says God created man from nothing and in his own image, which means that as mankind exists, we are a testimony to God's power and we are glory to him. So from the fact that God created Adam first out of nothing, a tradition arose for men to leave their head uncovered in worship to symbolize there's nothing between them and God. They owe their existence to God and God is glorified by our worship or by our existence. That tradition reflects man as the chief authority in the home as God designed the family. For as Paul points out, God started with man and then added woman. He did that consciously and he did it knowing where he was going. It wasn't an afterthought. And so he meant there to be a message in that process, in that order. That man came first, women were made as a companion to man, the two together working as one. And in that relationship comes implied authority. And so God... When he created woman as a companion for man, created her not from the same source as he did for Adam, but from Adam's own body. And in doing so, it reflects her chief purpose in the family, which is to desire and support and help her husband. Her relationship with Adam's body is an example of that intimate relationship that the wife has with her husband and also of her spiritual dependence upon her husband. And Paul says in verse nine that a wife is to the glory of her husband in the sense that she brings him honor by submitting to his authority. By saying yes to what God himself has proclaimed. And so how does the culture in Paul's day communicate their acceptance of that truth. They communicated it with this little tradition on head coverings. Men didn't wear it. Women did. And the message was clear. I am the chief in the family. I am submitted to my husband. And that's a good message because it's the truth of Scripture. And therefore, Paul says that women ought to have that symbol. And look, he uses the word symbol of a man's authority on her head when she is worshiping. She's expected to keep this tradition because if she didn't, she would be communicating her defiance to the beliefs of this system. You can't be neutral. You couldn't walk into the church and say, look, I just don't like a head covering, but trust me, I'm fully submitted. I love my husband. Totally get it. I agree with all of what the Bible says. I just don't like things on my head. 
You couldn't do that. There's no option in the culture to have that perspective. You either agreed with the tradition and all that it stood for, or you defied the tradition and you were dishonoring your husband and his authority. It came down to that. That's the tradition of Paul's day. Of course, that tradition says nothing about a woman's access to the Lord, about her relationship with the Lord. No woman is required to work through a man to reach the Lord. Women are not lesser members of the body of Christ. Paul makes clear that men and women are equal in spiritual terms. He does that next in the last section we'll do this morning. Verses 11 through 16, Paul says, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of women. For as the woman originates from the man, well, so also the man had his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. If you're inclined to buck this rule, I'm sorry, we don't have any other options. It's either do this or don't. That was Paul's response. So to sum up what he's saying, he says, God has designed the reproduction of human beings so that men and women are equally important to the process, which ensures that none of us can walk around with a haughty attitude and say we're more important in God's creation than the other. This is to the point that women and men are equal in respects of importance and spiritual honor and opportunity to serve and in their direct access to Christ, etc., etc. We're not putting any different relationship there, men or women, to God. Everyone has a mother. Everyone had a father. And so Paul says we all trace our origins back to God. This is not an issue of individual worth or respect or honor in that sense. And he's making that clear. We need to make that clear. Paul says these differences, though, the differences of men and their hair and women and their head coverings and the like are traditions that have been developed in response to truths of Scripture that then communicate these truths through our behavior. I think it is interesting today that even now, even with all our liberal thought and the desire of some men to wear their hair long, nevertheless, you look around and in general, women have hair longer than men. Men have hair shorter than women. It's maintained itself, but not as an absolute rule. And that's where we get to the last question for the day. Do we still share an obligation to observe this tradition in exactly the way Paul stated it for the Corinthian church? And the answer is it depends. It depends. If we find ourselves in a culture or in a church, where head coverings still carry this meaning, then yes, we should observe the tradition, for otherwise we're defying the, the meaning, we're, we're countering the meaning, we're arguing with the truth through our behavior. There are going to be some places like that in the world, and there are even some Christian communities in which you still see the women wearing head coverings and the men never have hats in the church. And if you're in that setting, Paul's instructions fully apply. We need to fall into conformity with what's going on around us so that we don't appear to be disagreeing with the message. Even Christians who go to Muslim countries, women wear the hajib, the head covering, and they do so. Why? Because there is a tradition there that says if you don't, you're defying authority and you're dishonoring your husband. Why would you want that as your reputation while you're out trying to evangelize for the sake of Christ? It would not help your cause, right? You would not become all things to them in that sense. So there are going to be those times when it may make sense. But in many other places, certainly here and in most other places in the West, the tradition of head coverings has completely lost its meaning. If you were a woman and you walked in today with your head shawl on, what are you communicating? What is the thing most people would assume when you walk in with a head covering? It's a little cold or it's windy outside and you don't want to mess up your hair. 
That's about the extent of it, right? If that's the case, if a woman's choice to wear or not wear head covering does not communicate any spiritual truth concerning headship, then it stands to reason that we can dispense with that tradition for what is the purpose in maintaining a ritual when it's absent meaning. It's ceased being spiritually meaningful. It's ceased being useful. As our customs have changed, this is one of those traditions that is no longer meaningful in many circles. Now, is it wrong if we were to reinstitute or to maintain this custom in a church? No, because we have freedom to do so. Paul's concern in the church in Corinth was that because the tradition still carried its assigned meaning, they were making statements of unhealthiness when they chose not to. We fast forward to the 21st century church, though, and wherever that meaning has fallen away, the tradition has gone away. And for good reason, because we have liberty on this issue. Remember, Paul said last week that someone else's concerns don't impact our liberty. It's our choice to restrain our liberty for the sake of their concerns. And we do that still on this issue today. Now, let's be clear as we end. Not every tradition can be set aside entirely simply because a cultural change is taking place around us. That we know. This is one that does because the meaning went away with it. But there are certainly other things in which the meaning has persisted and therefore our behavior in it needs to persist. The message, though, that we still have an obligation to carry in the church is the message that husbands are submitted to Christ, that wives are submitted to their husbands. So at any point, we need to align our behavior so as to communicate that message properly. It won't be through hats, maybe. Perhaps it'll be through other ways. But the message hasn't changed. The truth hasn't changed. We're just saying that the ritual might. We'll come back next week and we'll look at the second issue of the Lord's Supper. But it's, again, a very similar issue. A tradition that has merit with a message, and we need to understand how we honor that message. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Father, that you would give us wisdom and counsel on these things. You would offer our hearts an opportunity to follow you, knowing that the message is paramount, but not to dismiss tradition too easily. To hear conviction when it comes and not to become slaves to culture. I do ask, Father, that we would maintain the truth of the message of submission to authority, that husbands would feel the burden that comes with leading in a family and would recognize the sober and serious nature of that of that burden, that they would concern themselves with the spiritual health of their children and of their wives, their wife, and that they would be um, caretakers of what God has given them. And I ask, Father, that wives likewise would honor the Lord by submitting to their husband's authority in a healthy way, in, in a respectful and honoring way, guiding and, and assisting, counseling and encouraging and exhorting at times, but always with an attitude of respectfulness and knowing where God has placed the authority in the family. And doing all of these things, Father, we seek to glorify you each in our own way. I pray that our hearts would always be directed in that, never for selfish interests. And that we would let our customs, our traditions, our rituals always come back to a message that is centered in the Bible and never just for their own sake. These are the things we pray, Father, from what we've heard in your word this morning. Bring us back next week according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.